Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Our reading this morning will be from Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. And they read as follows. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters, which were below the expanse, from the waters, which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God calling the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and the trees bearing fruit with seeds in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. You may be seated. This week's message is titled, Creation, Day 2 and 3. We are continuing our study of Genesis, focusing on the foundations of our faith. Last week, we covered the initial foundational verses leading to this truth, that if you are a believer, you are to believe that God of the Bible is his word in that Bible. It is God-breathed. It's inerrant. It's without error. It's infallible. In fact, it cannot err. And ultimately, it is his word. And because of that, we should believe that about all of Scripture, including Genesis, including the foundation of his word, which is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. It was six literal days of creation, approximately 6,000 years ago. God has not lied nor made his creation incomprehensible. And lastly, all humans, not just believers, are without excuse to not believe these observable truths. Now as we get into verses 6 through 8, which cover creation day 2, it's extremely easy to breeze over these verses and think that they have no meaning. Or we breeze over them as being incomprehensible, meaning we can't understand them because they're too great. But they are not incomprehensible. In fact, God does three things specifically in these verses. First, God is preparing his creation, created world to be able to sustain life so that he can place living things in that world. Second, he's creating the air that is breathed for those living things. And third, he's creating the world's atmosphere that is key to sustaining life and sustaining that air that is necessary for all things. Now, I need to stop for a moment to point out that people who believe in evolution, they do not believe in the air around the earth had oxygen in it when the earth first existed. They believe that air, the air was poisonous, very poisonous, made up of gases like methane and ammonia. Now, of course, they don't ultimately explain where these gases came from or other matter. Now, first understand the sheer stupidity of that thinking. If at any point those gases were the dominant gases in the air, it would have killed every living thing. Now, most evolutionary theories of kinds of species evolving into different species, they require the need of oxygen. Because there are two fundamental building blocks of life, oxygen and water. And water itself is part oxygen, H2O. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. That's why fish breathe water and gain oxygen the way mammals gain it through the air. The human body alone is made up of 60% water. 
Now, why do evolutionists believe the first atmosphere had these poisonous gases? It's mainly because when you mix certain toxic gases together, that chemical reaction produces oxygen. So the theory is, since we know combining certain chemicals produces oxygen, then that must be how evolution worked. But in order for that to work, three things must occur. First, you have to reject the possibility of creation completely. I, I didn't say you need, you need to not believe creation happened. I said you have to reject it from even possibly happen, happening, which by the way is truly unscientific. Secondly, you must believe those gases have to have always existed. And third, those gases must be mixed perfectly where they not only produce oxygen, but yet another toxic gas. And by the way, if you need perfection to mix the gases, then you need intelligent life to make that happen. Now it's important to understand the air that we currently breathe is made up of many gases. It's not just totally oxygen. 78% of the air we breathe is nitrogen. Only about 21% is oxygen, and the remaining is argon and other gases. But if the oxygen falls much below 21%, most living things die. And if the oxygen raises much above 21%, most living things die. But in order for evolution to work, oxygen cannot be in the air. Even from the University of Berkeley, California, they state in their own research, oxygen is an evolutionary constraint. Meaning, if oxygen, if it doesn't eliminate the chance of evolution, it certainly diminishes the capacity greatly. This is why they say we haven't evolved. And that is mainly because oxygen is from most creatures of this world, including humans. Now notice I said creatures. Most organisms, if left outside the body, die, and most of the time it's from oxygen. Oxygen burns them up. Did you get that? So the oxygen is for us humans and other creatures. It's a good thing for us. But most cells, if they leave the body, they cannot sustain life, they cannot survive, and a big part of that is because the oxygen outside in the air terminates those cells. You see, evolutionists know this. They know this. So in order to answer their atheist beliefs, they know they have to take oxygen away because organisms in the evolutionary process die from oxygen. However, if oxygen does not come in, in the perfect time, the things evolving that are gonna require oxygen, they die because of a lack of oxygen. So you have this living thing that starts to evolve, and then as it grows, it needs oxygen to sustain life. And so you have to have oxygen just show up magically at the right time in the right amount in the right way so that the thing that just evolved can now breathe. And if the oxygen shows up too early, it kills the thing that's evolving. If it shows up too late, the thing dies. And we're supposedly, as Christians, we're the crazy ones believing in the all-powerful intelligent designer. Think about those two things in contrast. But even more unbelievable for evolutionists is the fact that scientists have discovered oxygen in rocks that they themselves believe were part of the earth when it was first created, first existed, I should say, for the evolutionists. So from their own evolutionary story, evolutionists have to accept that there must have been oxygen in the air from the beginning of the world which they both in one hand acknowledge and in another hand deny.
it's totally contradictory. And so some Christians, me included, um, love sarcasm and love satire of God. And then you have others who try and say, God is not one of sarcasm and satire. What is more satirical than planting oxygen inside rocks for the atheist evolutionists to have to swallow 6,000 years after you created the earth? As I said last week, no one is without excuse. Now let's look at what God really did in the beginning of verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters, which were below the expanse from the waters, which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Now, to understand these passages, we also need to read Genesis 1, 14 through 17, and verse 20. And then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser lights to rule the night and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And verse 20 reads, Then God said, Let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. A note, birds flying across the face of the expanse. So we have flying creatures that were fly across the expanse, and we also have the sun, moon, and stars that were in the expanse. And so what these verses are saying is the expanse is outer space, where the sun, moon, and stars are. The waters above the expanse are the outer boundary of the whole universe. The phrase across the face of the expanse means the atmosphere where birds fly, meaning the sky. And the waters under the expanse are the waters covering the surface of the earth. And so on day two of creation, God made the expanse, which is really outer space. But remember I said last week, there was nothing before creation. There was no outer space. It had not been created before this day. So as difficult it is for our finite minds to grasp, it seems the waters above the expanse are the outer edge of outer space. In fact, Psalm 148, uh, 3-4 says, Water is still above the heavens where the sun, moon, and stars are. Praise Him, sun and moon, praise Him. All stars of light, praise Him. Heavens of heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. And it's also interesting to note, 2 Peter 3, 5 read, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, many biblical scholars, including myself, believe this teaching that water was the main element for creation. And if water is the main element, then oxygen is involved in that as well. And so what happened on day two, God was obviously preparing the atmosphere for living things. And so then you have days three, five, and six of creation week. We find that God made all sorts of living things, plants, um, flying creatures, sea creatures, land animals, um, these kinds of things. And so most of those things require oxygen. And so every time you breathe in, your body takes that gas in and out of it. And so you need that to be created. And we then 
have to understand we obtain our food from animals and or plants. And even the animals we eat, they either get their food from other plants or other animals that eat plants. So most everything of food comes ultimately from plants. And so those who profess a need um, for vegetarianism, for really any reason, are an heir for this very thing. Our bodies were created primarily to feed off of the creatures of the land and the sea. And the land was created for the animals to feed off of it. And the land then requires pruning or grazing to max produce the vegetation, which requires the land manager. More on that later. The point is each item in creation is too closely united with another part of creation to be mere coincidence or an accident. Someone all-knowing planned each and every detail. Even more amazing is the fact that plants also use oxygen, but their primary gas that they use is carbon dioxide, the air that mammals um, and other creatures expire. This is the primary agent that plant life inspires, that it takes in. And then in turn, it primarily expires oxygen, the primary agent that we all inspire. And so on day three of creation, God made all the plants. So it is only logical to assume that when he was preparing the atmosphere on day two, he must have put oxygen and carbon dioxide around the earth so the plants and later the animals would be able to live and sustain life. We know oxygen had to be in the air when the earth was just over one day old. This means there was oxygen around the earth from almost the beginning. Now, have you ever thought about this? Why does the air stay here on earth? Why isn't there air and oxygen in space? The air is kept around the earth by the invisible force field called gravity. Okay, Gravity not only keeps us on the ground, as most think, but it also keeps air here on earth and not in space. And so if there was no gravity, the air would float out into space and everything here on earth would die. One of, the most, uh, one of the remarkable things that scientists know is the air has weight. But did you know the Bible had that information in it before scientists even discovered it? Job 28, 25, when he set weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. Now, there's some healthy debate on when Job lived. Um, but if we go back to the latest assumed, or the earliest assumed, however you want to look at it, that's approximately 4,500 years ago. Now, Isaac Newton, who was thought to have discovered gravity in 1665, it's only about 3,000 years that the Bible outperformed him. So he's just a little behind. Now, this is what's funny. The more and more that we study and the more that evolution and other philosophies, they become sad and funny all at the same time through scientific study and the study of Scripture. Sad because people not only believe a blatant falsehood, but they are fervent believers of it, meaning this lie. But it's funny because the false beliefs that they hold today, it is easier and it is more obvious today to observe their falsehood because of our ability to know what is true, yet they still hold it. Right now, Venus and Jupiter... They're in our same solar system. They have an atmosphere full of poisonous gases. Poisonous gases exactly like the ones they believe Earth started from. 
And are there living organisms on those planets? Nope. And why? Because life can't be sustained on them. Are those poisonous gases changing into oxygen like they supposedly did on here on Earth? Nope. Because that's a ridiculous belief. And the more they are able to send spacecraft to Venus, Mars, and the other planets of our solar system, they find that not only is the Earth, that only the Earth is just right for life. All the other planets have poisonous gases, and they're either too far from the sun or too close to the sun. Only the Earth has the right atmosphere for life. In fact, it's so intricate for it to work that it has to require a designer. Remember God said it was good every day he finished his work for that day, ending with very good on the last day. That's so close to a perfect, non-eternal created thing it could ever be. That's what he means by that. And actually, there's a word that describes this fact. The earth is just right in so many ways. Just the right distance from the sun, just the right atmosphere, just the right substances like liquid, water, and so on, that our planet has just the right conditions for life. And in science, we call that the anthropic principle. Now, sadly, some Christians think that God used evolution to make life. And here's a big problem for people who try and accept this idea. The evolutionary story states life first evolved from the sea. So evolutionists claim that chemicals in the ocean somehow came together by natural processes to make the first life. Notice that on day three of creation week, the first living things God made were land plants. The evolutionary story and what God states in the Bible are totally different. So if you are a professing Christian and you're also professing evolution, you have a contradiction inside of your own the uh, theories. Um, but let me give you another example of this. Have you ever heard of the yucca plant? Now, these tough plants grow really well in Mexico. Now, for the yucca to produce and make copies of itself, it's through pollination, through pollen. And so, just like our flowers that we have here, you have to get pollen from one type of, uh, one type of flower to the next type of flower in order to produce. But here's the key. The yucca plant kills basically all pollinators, but one. The yucca plant is extremely toxic to all other pollinators. So you can't just put bees and other things that are normal pollinators, butterflies, these kinds of things, because the yucca plant kills it. But the one that it doesn't is a special moth called the yucca moth. Why? Because it's the one that can pollinate yuccas. It is only the yucca moth that can pollinate a yucca plant. Remember, the plant can't do it by itself. So you must have the moth in order for this to work. And by the way, the yucca moth needs the yucca plant so it can live. It can't live without the yucca plant because it needs its specific moth or pollen. That's why it's called the yucca moth. And the yucca plant can't live without the moth and the moth without the plant. So how does evolution explain, explain this? Now, you can't explain that through evolution and you certainly can't explain it if you try and shove Christianity into it as well. If you try and go thousands or millions of years in each one of the six days of creation, if the moth is not created at the same time as the yucca plant, as it would be if you did millions of years in between these days, how then does the yucca plant survive if it's created on day three and then you have millions of years before it's created on day five? It doesn't work. Evolution doesn't work. You have to have both of these things created and set together.
That's how it works. We need to stop adding man's ideas to God's word and start letting God's word just be that, his word. So on day two, we now have the earth that is still a watery blob. The atmosphere has been formed around the earth, but no living things yet. Outer space is created, but with no other planets or moons or stars or anything else. And then verse 8 ends with, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, did you notice that at the end of the second day, God doesn't say it was good, as he does for the other five days of creation? Now, why is this? Now, Ken Ham gave a great, great reason for this. Whether it's right, I don't know. But here's his quote. Possibly he didn't create anything totally new on day two. He just separated what was already created, as explained earlier. And he was preparing for all that would happen on the next four days of creation, end quote. So whether that, right, that answer is right or not, what we do know is what God did say in Genesis 1.31 at the end, that everything God made at the end of his creation process was very good. And day two would be, uh, would be included in that very good. Now verse 9 says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. Day three begins and the earth takes on definite shape as God commanded the land to rise up out of the water. Now because of the phrase, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, many Christian scientists believe, including myself, that the land would have also been in one place. Okay? More specifically, the possibility there was actually only one continent originally, one major landmass on the earth when it was first made. This continent may have had a variety of shapes around its coast like any other island. If there was only one continent originally, then something has obviously happened to break up this landmass and it's formed into various continents that we have today, which most likely happened during Noah's flood, that catastrophic event that separates everything out. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Now, I need to stop for a minute and talk about the false belief of the earth being flat. Now, most of us were taught that this false thinking was medieval times or even some other century far removed from us. But sadly, this has started to make a comeback with belief and not just the crazies. Um, however, this has started to creep up in professing Christians because of a misinterpretation of Scripture. And this it comes from this phrase in 1 Samuel 2.8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. And so you either have those that argue that this contradicts the other passage of the Bible that it teaches the earth hangs on nothing, or they argue that it's a literally true and the earth is flat, resting upon four pillars like a table. However, this phrase is from a prayer or a song, the song of Hannah specifically, Samuel's mother. Hannah is using the term pillars of the earth in a spiritual sense. Remember, words could have different meanings depending on how they're being used. And this section in Samuel, it's not the account of history, okay? It's a prayer. It's a song. It's, it's truly more beautiful than we really appreciate when we don't speak and read Hebrew. The phrase pillars of the earth used in this prayer actually refers to the strength of God himself as he holds everything together. The only reason that we and everything else exists is through God's power holding everything together. We are reliant on him. Without him, we ultimately disappear. Okay, The Bible teaches us this in Hebrews 1.3. Uh, 
who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. This means God holds everything together. And through this song, Hannah is recognizing God's great power in that prayer. It's a combination of the biblical fear of the mighty one and the worship and thanksgiving of him. It's beautiful. It's truly beautiful. Others sometimes will point to Isaiah 11, 12 and Revelation 7, 1. We read about the four corners of the earth. And so they, because of the four corners, and they translate that to the Bible as flat, which is still not true. And let me explain. When you take four corners of the earth, what it means is if you take a ball or an apple or anything else, and you cut it in half and then cut it in half the other way, you create four quarters, meaning the four corners of the earth. And that's what that phrase, four corners, means. And so God raised up the land surface, made the seas on day three, and the earth is now taking definite shape. And so it's no longer a watery blob. It's no longer without form and void. And as we read in verse 2, or excuse me, as we read in verse 2, and so the earth is taking on shape. And so what does that shape become? Now, we have the benefit of having studied the earth. We have scientists that know the earth is a spherical shape. We have pictures from outer space uh, because we've done that. It's truly beautiful. We know that it hangs on nothing. It's just in outer space, and it's perfectly set in this perfect uh, sphere. But what is hilarious is all of this is in Scripture, including the sphere shape, hanging on space. It's all in the Bible. Never forget, God created this thing, so why wouldn't he have written these things? Proverbs 8.27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out a circle on the face of the deep. Isaiah 40.22, it is he who inhabits above the circle of the earth. The word circle, it means sphere. Okay? It's not just talking one-dimensional, it's three-dimensional. And God is telling us the earth is round, it's spherical, it's not flat. And we also have Job 26, 7, we read, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. The Bible tells us what we have already discovered as scientists to be true. The earth does not rest on anything, it hangs on nothing, it hangs in space. And it's just funny, if we just come to Scripture and believe it, these ridiculous ideas will be put down. And so the earth is a sphere, but what about the topography of the land created on day three? What did it look like? To answer that, it's important to know there's not enough water in the oceans to cover all the mountains that exist today. And this is important as we go through, so understand. But what we, have, what we do know, what scientists have calculated, that if all the land surface and the ocean basins that existed today were flattened out, so that there are no hills, valleys, deep trenches, etc. The water in the oceans would cover the entire earth to a depth of almost two miles. So if the ocean were not as deep as it is now, and the mountains not as high, there would have been enough water to cover the entire earth, just as it says in Genesis chapter 7. This would mean more than likely the high mountains and the deep oceans that form towards the end of the flood, even after the flood. That's why we have them. Now, most are unaware of Psalm 109. It's a beautiful psalm it's from David. But the amount of creation information in this shows you that Scripture is inspired by the one true God. In fact, there's so much information in here about the flood. It's, 
it's really kind of breathtaking thinking how long from the time the flood occurred to David. And so it reads, Psalm 104, verse nine, uh, 5 through 9, He founded the earth upon its place, so that it not shake forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away in alarm. The mountains went up, the valleys went down, and the place which you founded uh, for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass again, pass over, so that they will never, not return to cover the earth. And so in these verses, David was saying, after the water covered the entire earth, God raised up the mountains and then sunk the ocean floor so that the water could run off the earth. And this would explain, hear me, this would explain why we have marine fossils on the top of mountains like the Himalayas. It's the only thing that explains that. The creatures were buried by the flood. And then the, as the sediments raised and the mountains are formed at the end of the flood, this is why you get them on the top of them. And then he says that God set a boundary so that the water could never run over again and cover the earth. And this fits with the end of the flood described in Genesis 9-11. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never be again be a flood to destroy the earth. Genesis 9-11. Now it is interesting if you think about it, if all creation started and water was the main element that God used to form his creation, it explains why water was used in the judgment of destroying that creation. This is why water and oxygen are so very, very important. Now, God promises he will never again judge the earth with a global flood, even though we've seen floods. They're not global floods. And so it seems that at the end of Noah's flood, God raised up the mountains and made the deep oceans. This means the water from Noah's flood is in today's oceans. Remember, the next time that you're looking at the ocean, you are looking at the waters of judgment that once destroyed the entire earth, the water that God used to judge the earth because of the wickedness of man. So what did the original look like? Well, we don't entirely know. Um, what we can piece together through Scripture, we know Genesis uh, 7:19 says, "And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the and the word that's used, depending on your translation, is either high mountains or high hills, depending on the true translation." It, logically, it makes more sense that there were high hills, then you had small valleys, flat areas, lakes, and rivers. And then after the flood, you have the high mountains and the deep seas being formed by the water. There must have been plenty of places like lakes, rivers, lots of fresh, clean water because God made many kinds of animals to live on the earth on day six. And we read in Genesis 2.10 that he told about the river of the Garden of Eden. And so if you have a river, the river has to dump in the ocean. That's what a river is. And if they don't, otherwise it's considered a lake. And so the question of the ocean, it really boils down to salt content. Now, if you're unaware, the salt in the ocean is actually from our land currently. It's draining from erosion and rivers and rain and all kinds of things. So land is, excretes salt, and ultimately that salt is then washed away into the oceans. Now, scientists can measure how much salt drains from, into today's oceans from land and they can measure how much salt leaves the oceans. They can measure both those things. And if all the water in all the oceans was fresh water with no salt, 
when the oceans were first formed, then evolutionists have another big problem. They say oceans are hundreds of millions of years old. Here comes the problem. But even if there was no salt when they started, based on this false belief, the amount of salt in them today would not take anywhere near hundreds of millions of years to accumulate. So what I'm trying to tell you is the oceans, if they were millions of years old, and it were true, they would be so salty they would have, the earth would have excreted so much salt from that point that it would be impossible for life to be in them. This means the oceans can't be millions of years old. There may have been some salt in the oceans to start with, as God made the oceans ready for all sea creatures that he's going to create on day five. However, it may have been that it wasn't as salty as it is now uh, when he first made it. It's possible and probable that during the Great Flood, a lot of salt from the earth was added to the oceans, which is why we have the high salt content now. Now, verse 11, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth its vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And so later on day three, he commanded the plants to be brought forth. And these plants would be growing on the land surface. God must have made this dry land just with some of the best soil that's ever been seen. Now, do not miss this. On the third day, God also made the first living things, plants. And this text tells us that God made three basic types of plants, grasses, shrubs, and trees. God did not make seeds and then plant them so that they would grow into plants. He made them fully formed, mature, mature uh, plants, meaning the fruit trees already had fruit on them with seeds in them because they were mature. In Genesis 1, 29 through 30, we're told that Adam and Eve were to eat the fruit of the plants. The animals were also plant eaters. If you add millions of years, they're going to be waiting a long time for their fruit to grow. Obviously, God made plants ready for humans and the animals he would create just a few days later. I notice that God created plants so that they would reproduce. Hear me. Reproduction is to make a copy of yourself, okay? God said the plants he made had seeds. Think about a small seed that you can hardly see, and you plant that seed in the ground, and then the plant grows, and from that seed you get this enormous tree. Think about all the information for that tree that is condensed into that small seed. And when God created the various kinds of uh, plants, he created all the information of DNA into the molecules of that type of plant, that kind of plant, into a single seed. It's truly beyond our, our comprehension how much information is in a single seed. And, and to give you a contrast, think about it this way. When builders design a building, all their plans and instructions are for just one building even if it's a large one. And if it's a large one, it might take up hundreds of pages of diagrams of written information for that single building. But if you could write all the information in a tiny seed that grows into a tree, it would probably take thousands of books in each with thousands of pages. And so God put all the instructions on how a tree is built and how it is to grow in the seed. And then, 
The remarkable thing is the seed carries out the instructions by itself. All by itself, mind you. No building has ever just been built from the plans. That doesn't happen. But a plant can do that. Not only that, a plant grows and then makes more seeds so that it can make copies of itself. Again, no building after it was built made its own plans so it can copy itself and make more buildings. Now the plants we have today were not made directly by God. He made the first plants directly, but he made them to make copies of themselves from the origination. Plants yielding seed or after their kind with seed in them. Plants only live a certain amount of time, a certain number of years. The plants are to make copies over and over and over again for thousands of years um, from the first creation. And so what we have today is copies. But we can still say that God made all plants because he built that information into his first creation. Now, the rest of the chapter, we read this phrase, according to its kind, or according to their own kinds. And it's a total of ten times in the remaining part of this chapter. So God made plants and later animals after their kind, which implies that they would reproduce their own kind. And we'll discuss that kind in more detail when we deal with creation of animals. But research shows you can get a great variation within a kind. But the point is the kind can never change into a totally different kind. With animals, we know that cats only reproduce cats and horses only reproduce horses, even though you can have different varieties of horses and cats, like zebras, donkeys, miniature ponies, etc. You know, your big cats, tigers, lions, and all the way down to kittens, they, they all stay in their kind, okay? You don't have cross-pollination of horses and cats. God also made plants in kinds, which means they reproduce their own kind. And so you have fruit trees, but you have fruit trees within their own kinds. So you don't have coconut trees that can ever produce oranges. They are two different types, two different kinds of trees, even though they're both trees, they're both fruit trees. They belong to different kinds. Now, people who believe in evolution think that one kind of animal changed into a totally different kind of animal over millions of years. For instance, they believe that animals like dinosaurs changed into birds and ape-like creatures evolved into people. The fact that God uses the phrase after its kind or after their own kind ten times in Genesis shows he's trying to emphasize his creation, his creation of kinds and separating them. None of them evolved from each other. And so, again, to hold that as a Christian of evolution, you are holding a contradictory statement. Now, never heard of Carolus uh, Linnaeus. In the 18th century, he believed the Bible. He believed God, believed his word. And so he set out to prove it. And he invented a system to name the animals and the plants into groups because of Scripture. And it's what we call taxonomy today. And still, by and large, in science, we follow his taxonomy today, classifying things by their kingdom, their phylum, their class, their order, their family, the genus, and um, their species. He became a very famous scientist because he believed in God. Now, initially, he honestly, he thought species corresponded with kind, but later realized he was an heir and... Uh, in most instances, we now realize that the family level of classification usually corresponds to what we would call a kind. 
Sometimes it is at the order level, but mainly it is at the family level of classification. And so that is how we have those different classifications. Now, I want to close with three things. First, Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and encompassed the heavens by the span and calculated the dust from the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Now, this verse reminds us of how great and infinite our Creator is. And I want to drive that home in this first point. God knows how much water is in the ocean because he put it there. He knows how the big, big the universe is because he put it there. And he knows how much material makes up a mountain and a hill because he formed it. Now, how did God make the seas? Look at Genesis 1-9 again. And God said, or God spoke, and it happened. This is beyond our understanding. It helps us understand that how great God is. But I want you to hear me here. This is the first point of, his, of how great he is. There was another time when the land obeyed God because he wanted it to do something for him. In Numbers 16, we read about a man called Korah who rebelled against Moses. And we are told, because of his rebellion, the ground underneath him split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Numbers 16, 31-32. Think about that for a minute. You have solid ground, and God splits that solid ground up and swallows all those that follow Korah in that rebellion. So God told the land what to do, and it obeyed, because he is the creator. And this should make us realize how much we should obey our creator and trust what he said. Secondly, don't miss... The beauty of God's created world. The earth is so beautiful, it is filled with breathtaking landscapes, giving us some of the most beautiful scenes imaginable in the human eye. This created world has some of the most gorgeous trees, flowers, oceans, rolling landscapes. Think about the sunrises and sunsets that we get blessed with every single day. Or the Ouroboros, the beautiful dancing lights, which have fascinated people for centuries, all created by our Creator to recognize the beauty of this world, of His creation. But we have this ever-increasing of the busyness of our own lives, and we miss the beauty around us. Don't miss it, and thank your Creator for it, and thank Him for creating you. And then honor Him by enjoying the things that He created and their beauty. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with, it's often overlooked and missed, one of the kinds of trees God created that made copies of itself many times over was used by the Roman soldiers to make a cross. This is why Acts 5.30 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. Jesus Christ, the Creator, was nailed on the cross formed from a tree that the Lord God made on the third day. So when God made the trees, he knew one of those trees would be the ancestor of a tree that thousands of years later he would, would be used to make a cross, his cross. Remember, God knows everything. So he must have known this. God knew before he created Adam that Adam would fall 
and with it, the whole human race. And God knew that he would send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a tree for the sin of rebelling against God. He knew this before he made the world. Even knowing this, he still made the world. And he made the tree not only where the payment would be made, but so the payment could be made. And although the Romans constructed the cross, it was God who spoke that tree into existence that one day his son would hang on, providing not only the lamb, but the altar as well. And although the text does not say, I have often wondered if God would have used an ancestor from the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be the tree that he hung his own son from. For you and for me, he knew that when he spoke that tree into the center of the garden, we would need another tree for the payment of that sin. And then verse 13 ends with, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Amen.